Our guest this week is the award-winning Washington, D.C. correspondent and bureau chief for the American Urban Radio Network, a position she's held since 1997. She's also a political analyst for CNN, a position she's held since 2017. She's an African-American single mother of two who's been covering the White House since Bill Clinton's second term. But she was thrust into the national spotlight with the advent of the Trump administration when she attracted controversy for standing up to the president and his press secretary at White House briefings and press conferences by asking tough questions and holding her ground for follow-ups. Among her many awards and honors, the National Association of Black Journalists named our guest as the Journalist of the Year in 2017. Our guest this week is April Ryan. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, and Spotify, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with the Washington, D.C. correspondent of the American Urban Radio Network's April Ryan. April, you've had a very, very formidable career in the White House as a correspondent going all the way back to Clinton. Uh, But when uh, the Trump administration started, it uh, kind of uh, changed your uh, profile in the industry. Uh, Just off the top of your head, what was that like? It was different, but, you know, what what are you going to do? Are we going to sit there and cry or try to keep moving? Um, It's not about me, and I did nothing wrong. Um, It's been different uh, covering this president. But I'm going to say this. There have been so many uh, new... uh, no, I'll say nuances. I'll say nuances. I'm not going to say new approaches with each president. I'm going to say nuances. Um, there's a nuance to each president that comes in. They're all different. Um, primarily, you believe that they are coming, um, doing the best that they know how um, to, to cover it. Um, but there are always nuances with each person who handles things differently. This president is very different, to say the least. Before we get into your adventures with Donald Trump, uh, because you have such a colorful history, tell us your impressions of uh, each of uh, his predecessors that you covered uh, from your perspective. Each one is different in so many ways. But uh, let me start with the similarities. Um, Clinton and Bush were two people who were gregarious. Obama wasn't. And the reason why I believe he was not gregarious, as gregarious as they were is because there was so much more on the line for him because of the historic nature of his presidency. When you get to this president, um, he's an entertainer for sure. Um, he's got Ronald Reagan beat. Um, I believe Ronald Reagan, just watching, the, I didn't cover Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. but no matter what you say about Ronald Reagan's politics um, or what he did or what he said, Ronald Reagan, I believe, wanted to present an air of the traditional presidential air. This president is like, I'm not traditional. I'm not doing it. 
this is how it's going to be. And he even said it's not entertaining. But at the end of the day, this is not entertainment. This is life or death. Everything comes to the White House for water peace and everything in between. Um, the last three before this president had people in place who were able to understand the situations, had some kind of background. This is a president who didn't want that kind of uh, dynamic. He wanted to drain the swamp, as he says. But now when we're in the midst of this, you look back and say, hmm, it might have been, you know, a good idea to have people who understand what's going on. Who knows where we would have been if we um, would have had the, the national security advisors that used to be there. Who knows where we would have been if we had people dealing um, with this um, and, and paying attention to it a little bit more back in 2019, because it's called COVID-19 and it happened in 2019, started in 2019, mm. um, instead of dealing with it in uh, March. So, I don't know. I mean, it's just, there, there are nuances about personalities, and there are also, you know, there are nuances about each president, but there are also nuances in how they govern versus this one. So, um, there are stark differences with this last president versus the last three that I've covered. But what I will tell you is, with each president, particularly for the press, <clears throat> and how we cover. If we lose ground, we'll never gain it again. And I believe that's one of the reasons why there's such a hard fought, uh, fight with this president, uh, Donald John Trump, because if we lose ground, and, we, and we've lost ground with each president. I mean, I remember, and it's not always necessarily the fault of the press, but maybe it's because of the times. And the example is um, before 9-11, they used to put everything out on paper and in bins. And during the time when I was um, covering the White House during Clinton, Clinton didn't even know how to use a computer. And we were, you know, basically, you know, using computers, but not in the way we're using them now. There weren't smartphones. There were flip phones still. Mm. <clears throat> and we had beepers. But when 9-11 hit, when George W. Bush was president, the only people who could get communication out or talk to people were people who had blackberries, and blackberries are texting to one another. So they changed, um, George W. Bush changed a lot of that. We started dealing with blackberries, getting information from blackberries. And then we had Barack Obama, the president who people were fighting about, why is he on social media? Why is he doing this? Why is he doing that on, on, on the Internet? But he made us start looking at things on the Internet to see some of the statements he would, he would make. But now all we do is get information from the president pretty much beyond the briefings now online from the president. How interesting. So, so, yeah, so, so Barack Obama was sort of a, a predecessor and more than just uh, the, the numbers involved. He was sort of paved the way in terms of the, uh, the White House press corps and the presidency communicating with each other on the internet. Yeah. That, he and was you know, the, when he ran for of office, when he ran for office, everyone, all the politicians were kind of running from uh, the internet and social media, but he mm. embraced it. He used it to his advantage. And I'll never forget uh, Newt Gingrich saying that Republicans have to learn the internet. We didn't have, um, uh, what do you say, we didn't have the the, the abilities like, you know, the Democrats have, have cornered the market in it. Now this is, I mean, Twitter, oh, my gosh, the fight is fierce. You know, you have a lot of the right who are beating down the left. So that, that, that chasm 
between mm-hmm. parties and, and knowing who knows the Internet or whatever. It, it's changed. So this president is utilizing the Internet to be able to reach, and this is what Barack Obama did, but he also used his communications office. But this president wants to talk one-on-one with people by cutting out the middleman, cutting out the press secretary, and going straight to them on Twitter or on social media, pretty much Mm -hmm. Twitter. Interesting. Uh, Barack Obama also uh, was revolutionary in the way he used the Internet to raise money. He um, yes. he was very effective at that, and and that's changed politics. I see every yeah. candidate following in the footsteps of Barack Obama when it comes to and fundraising. His, he, he, yeah, raising money, and, it, and the average donation was like twenty five dollars. Right. The right. average donation was around twenty five dollars for Barack Obama. It yeah. wasn't this grandiose amount, twenty five dollars. So um, and now, I mean. Just the, just the concept of it then, and, and look at the practice of it now. It's just, this is the new delivery system, especially in a moment like this, this COVID-19. This is the new delivery system, and everyone's on it. And if you're not, I mean, and I'm thinking about churches who never saw the wave of televangelism or mm-hmm. um, what is streaming your service. And a lot of those pastors who are not streaming their services are crying now. They're really hurting more so than the ones who are even though they're streaming, still not getting the, the financial um, support that they would get on Sundays. Well, they, a, a lot of these televangelists, a lot of these, uh, th- these uh, missions are, um, are really very sophisticated, and they gear the entire yeah. process to the Internet, as opposed to a camera in the back of the room covering it for people <laughs> to be able to watch online. These, um, these ministries... Uh, that's what I, the word I was looking for. These ministries are mm-hmm. radio and television operations. They they they're in the same business. Right. That most of the people listening to this conversation, in terms of uh, our uh, industry, following to these programs that I do, um, but they they're in a different end of it. That's so different; it almost seems like a different business. But they're basically running television and radio stations and internet operations. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's fascinating. Of it all. Yes, the business of it all. Uh, but when you first were suddenly cast in the spotlight of uh, being this, um, and you came across as very professional and brave, the president of the United States was giving you a tough time, and you, you knew the cameras were on you. You knew suddenly your thrust into the national spotlight. Was it frightening? Was it, did you say to yourself, wow, this is great, I'm getting attention? Uh, did he scare no, you? No, and, and, and contrary the- to what people want to believe, no. I never looked at it about me. Um, it, I didn't want it, I don't like the attention, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, but I do speak my mind. No, I don't like the attention. It's about the story, it's about the issue, it's not about me. I didn't do anything wrong when all that spotlight was coming on me. I just asked questions, and then I, for whatever reason, was perceived as the bad guy. I don't know about that. You were the bad guy among people who uh, were siding (laughs) with Trump, but you weren't the bad guy to people who were happy to see somebody of courage stand up to the president. But it was a double-edged sword, but here's the thing. Um, There is a reality with that. Asking questions now in 2020 of a president where um, people feel that when you ask a question, you're doing it to berate him. No. Again, everything comes to the White House between, from war to peace and everything in between. And that in between is what we're going through. And if you dare to question him, 
you know, according to some who don't know the Constitution, who have never read a history book, mm-hmm. or U.S. government had took a U.S. government class, a civics class, God forbid you ask a question that he doesn't know or he gets an answer wrong, you get a death threat. And it's crazy. There are people out here nowadays who just don't understand the concept of what our founding fathers put in place. And it's really sickening, and it's unnecessary. Um, and, and, and this president, um, he knows that they're there. And that's the people he panders to. And, I mean, it's, it's just not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling um, to be in the spotlight over that. But, you know... Um, well, it's dangerous in this environment even to be a celebrity. It's dangerous to be famous. It's dangerous to have an opinion in public because there are death threats out there. There are trolls. Yeah. There are nasty, nasty people. I suspect that this is a symptom of the Internet in general. What do you think? I don't know if it's a symptom of the Internet. I believe it needs to, the, the, the whole social media, the whole, the whole thing needs to be watched a little bit more, but I mean, you don't have regulations like you have on radio or TV like you do for the internet. And there's something to be said about that. I don't know if I want censorship, but there are people who do not practice good behavior and feel that they can say and do anything. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we are all responsible for ourselves. But I really just think that we need to have better cyber hygiene. Um, and the Internet was never made to take things off of it. It was made for information. I remember being in school, in college, in the 80s, and my teacher was talking about, oh, it's the information superhighway. I'm like, it's coming, it's coming. I'm like, well, where is it? Where is it going to fit? <laughs> you know, and this it, is it. it. It was very exotic. The first time I ever heard the term information superhighway, I think it was Al Gore. And and I was saying to myself, wait a second, wait a second. What is an information superhighway? Very hard to when when you're in the analog era. And I've always been futuristic. I've always looked to the future. Uh, That's always been my, my main interest is the future. But even someone like me who was so focused on the future... I found it hard to, what's the expression, wrap my brain around the idea of there being a super highway of information. I, I couldn't figure out what it meant. We and then, were I, in the same boat, but now this is what we're doing. Your podcast is going to go on the, oh, what, yeah? what used to be called the, the information superhighway, but now we call it the Internet. Well, as President Bush used to call it the Internet. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, you know, that's what it is. And, and the thing of it is, the greatness about it is, you know, we don't have to go to the library anymore. It's at our fingertips. But the downside is, is what you do with that information, how you recreate history or lot. I mean, it's just so much negative. But you have to learn, you know, it's part of the process. You have to weed through it. I don't want there to be censorship, but some of the stuff that's said and done on here, it needs to stop. It's just there's, there's such a, a visceral reaction to just saying hello to someone. Yeah, the, 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 free, the free speech concept, and, and, and that is my favorite political uh, uh, quest, is the First Amendment. Uh, that, that's something that is my main political position. I try to stay out of the polarizing aspect of politics in terms of the work I do. But um, I'm very, very uh, aggressive about uh, supporting the First Amendment. That being said, 
some of this has even challenged my ability to do that. There are some, there are some things I just say, well, shut that person up. And then I say, wait a second. You know, I will defend to the death your right to say that. I go, well, would I? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's freedom is not a tidy thing. It takes responsibility. We're dealing with that right now. There were people having a major argument in this country about uh, the whole idea of the government shutting things down. On one level, they say, yes, we should isolate. Yes, we should practice this uh, this approach to fighting the coronavirus. But I don't want the government telling me I can't go to church. I don't want the government telling me I can't go for uh, to, to a restaurant or for a walk in the park because we're giving up our, our rights to a government and we may never get them back. You obviously are following that conversation as well. What are your thoughts? Um, let me tell you the opening and closing of the government. And, and as we're talking, I'm on the information superhighway. Well, so much for me having your undivided attention. Um, and it's interesting. Um, I'm looking at Susan Page. Uh, she said, former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, who has chaired the Democratic Convention, and the DNC told me he thinks it's unlikely Dems will be able to meet in Milwaukee in July. Discussions are underway about creative alternatives across the country. Um, the bottom line is we are not going to be, this president wants to open up certain parts of the nation and you've got festivals like this big essence festival that normally happens every year. Last year, many of the political candidates came to it's the largest black gathering every year annually in New Orleans. That's not going to happen now because, because the city of New Orleans is not letting any conventions come. Mm-hmm. Um, now this. And I talked to former National Security Advisor and former Ambassador Susan Rice, and we both were kind of on the same line of thought. I, we never talked about this except on my um, IG Live, my Instagram Live the other night. And I said, Susan, if indeed we have this pandemic and there's going to be an ebb and flow, this is not going to stop until the vaccine happens number one, until there is a vaccine, and then you still have to mass produce the vaccine. Even after the tests and trials, once there is a vaccine, you have to mass produce it. And I said, everyone, there's got to be a large swath of the nation that's got to be vaccinated. She said, no, it's a large swath of the globe that has to be. I didn't think about the globe. Um, And that was just astounding. And so that we're talking about, Two years of an ebb and flow. How are you going to open and close things? There is a serious conversation going on because, number one, if you open one part of the country that doesn't have much going on, there are going to be people coming through. There's going to be, you know, deliveries or what have you. You've got to be really careful. And, two, I just talked to Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer of uh, Michigan Friday, and she said she's still in need of tests masks and ventilators. How are you going to open up when you don't know if a person is infected or not? There needs to be a mass uh, testing of what's going on. And people are still requesting testing kits. So in theory, it sounds great, but the reality is something different. People, we're, I'm in the Baltimore area, Baltimore, Philly, and Washington, D.C., along with Houston. We're supposed to be getting hit soon in a couple of weeks with what New York had. So how are you going to open it up when you still having all this kind of stuff going on? 
So we have to really use critical thinking and look at what's going on. They're telling us now when we go outside, we got to wear masks. Half the population doesn't even have them because they were yeah. telling us not yeah. to get them. And then they started people who had been hoarding the masks. Mm-hmm. They, you know, anyone who wanted to sell a mask, who, who bought a bunch of them in bulk and wanted to sell them on Amazon, they didn't let, they're not letting them. There is an issue with supply and demand here when it comes to those critical things that we're supposed to be having. Even bandanas. I mean, I'm looking online. I mean, it's just, there's just, this was not managed properly. That's all. How The, the rollout of this. Um, we've never seen this before. But you didn't want people to panic. But now it's like people don't know what to do. And they're scared. The confidence. Now, you say you're going to open up society. The confidence by itself people feeling confident to go out and come together. And I say this, I hate the words social distancing because I think it's just, it's silly and it doesn't get to the meat. It's something that's cute, a cute term that does not fit the time. You want us to social distance. We are socially connected. We are physically distant. And that's what we need to talk about because on my street, I got a lot of people, they're socially talking across the street to each other. I'm like, you know, and thinking it's okay. And it's not because they are thinking, oh, well, we can still be social, but I'm distant. We don't know. They were talking about 27 feet. If if a a piece of spittle goes 27 feet, this thing is serious. So, and, and, and it was not perched in the right way at the beginning. And it's not being, it's not being discussed in the right way now. And you want to open the society, I get the economics of it, but how are you going to rea- in reality do this? How are you going to in reality do this without people going back and being infected again or um, just infected for the first time? And that antibody test that they were talking about, they're still saying it's a work in progress. It's not panning out like they originally thought it could. Yeah, I heard. That's so, what I heard. Yeah. Y- yeah. yeah. So, so your your, your not, point your it, point basically is is that uh, the whole issue of being told whether when we're opening and when we're closing is moot because <laughs> the way it's looking it doesn't matter whether it comes from uh, people going along with it or the government saying it it's going to be a very inconvenient thing to deal with this uh, in reality right. and and the White House Correspondents Association wants to, they canceled the one for um, April the end of April the the dinner now they want to have it in in August, and my company called, and they said, well, what are your feelings? I said, I don't feel comfortable sitting around a bunch of people. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's too soon. Yeah. And we're talking months away. So, like I said, it, this is a different day and a different time. April, this- how are you living? How, how are you going about your day and your work? Are you um, <laughs> going to the White House? Are you not? Are, oh, you, are no. you working no, out no, of no, home? No, 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 no. Tell me what you're I'm doing. I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. I'm still working. Um, I'm still talking to congressional leaders. I'm talking to people at the White House. I'm talking to people who are close to the president. Uh, still working. I'm still doing my stories. And I'm still um, reporting. But thank you to social media. Thank you to the Internet, as George Bush would say. Thank you to all the modern technology that I'm able to do my job. But think about if we didn't have it, like, you know, back in the 70s or something, we'd be in trouble. Big but trouble. the bottom line is we'd have to do everything by phone, right? Yeah. Um, but the thing of it is is that I am one of those people. I'm an African-American woman. I'm sure you didn't guess that. But <laughs> I'm an African-American woman. Um and I have underlying issues, and I have um, high blood pressure, 
and I have prediabetes and I have asthma, just like the U.S. Surgeon General has. And my problem is if I get sick, I'm a divorced mother. My kids need me. So AURN has allowed me to work from home, understanding my health issues. And, um, and I'm thankful for that. So I am working. And then in the evenings, what I'm doing, I'm holding these um, chats with people um, from entertainment to politics to finance. I just had Susie Orman on last night. Kim Fields, the actress, is coming on tonight. I've had Yama Van Zandt, Shirley Ralph. I had uh, Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor. Um, we've talked about love. We've talked about health. We've talked about everything. So I'm still working. And, um, but I am cognizant of what's going on in the world. I am, beyond being a reporter, I am a real person. See, a lot of people don't see the other layers in my life. And, um, yeah, the president says what he wants to say, but I have to go home to two kids who need me, you know. So I put that down and I come home. And if I can't come home, there's a problem. My two kids don't have anyone. Well, you uh, certainly do have uh, both of your feet uh, firmly planted on the ground, and uh, it's very refreshing <laughs> to hear that. Of course, you're not alone in working from home, and uh, some amazing... Are you doing that, too? Uh, my, my, entire, uh, my entire company, Talkers Magazine, we have uh, our headquarters are basically in western Massachusetts. I'm operating right now out of Florida. We have offices in several uh, cities around the country. Every single one of our... Uh, employees, our editors, our correspondents are working from home and have fully set up equipment for years uh, for mm. this. We we were ahead of the curve uh, curb on this. The curve on this. I I I've been a you know a proponent of the future technology going all the way back to the 90s. So we're dealing with it. And frankly, it doesn't make any difference. As a matter of fact, I have to tell you, I was telling my wife um, last night. I was watching uh, Chris Cuomo interviewing a, um, a Harvard God doctor and, right? and he's down in his basement. And I said, you know, something, mm -hmm. one of the, you know, everybody's talking about the changes, what's going to be the new normal, whatever that means. And I, and I said to my wife, I said, you know, this looks more credible seeing him in his house uh, as a person than the standard news background of the studios with the, the you lights. You see him and as a person, right. And this is going to change. I believe this is going to revolutionize all of this. I mean, he's looking like a normal person without being all dressed up. Right. I think this is, this is going to change everything for us, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That there's a new credibility that's being established. Mm -hmm. That a lot of the ways of just a few months ago suddenly seem very plastic, very glitzy, very, mm -hmm. very showbiz, and not mm -hmm. journalism. Uh, this is bringing everything back down to earth. So you're not that uh, mm -hmm. you're not that unusual when you say you're a real person and you have a couple of kids to take care of, and uh, you're not uh, you know swept off your feet by the celebrity or the or the spotlight being on you uh, and all of that. Um, you know, it's interesting. Another thing I wanted to say was we were talking about, you said social distancing, not a good, not a good word. You're absolutely right. And isn't it funny that in the age of social media, we're having social distancing, but it's a social media huh. that's keeping us together. We have physical distancing. That's right. we're, we, we, I, I think we're more together now than we've ever been. <laughs> it's, it, right. it's, so right. we're not distant at all. What, what is, what is, what is your take 
on uh, the, the the disproportionate percentage of the population uh, succumbing to this in the African American community. What is my take? I yeah, mean, what, what is reflects, what do you think is the reason for that? Is it yeah, overblown? it reflects what has been happening um, that there is an equity in the system, and it's just shining a blaring light on it. You know, there are people who are on the lower rung of the socioeconomic chain that use the ER for their hospital, I mean, for their, for their doctor. Right. That's not cool. There are people who can't afford health insurance. Um, there are people who are underemployed, not unemployed, but underemployed, meaning you're piecing together jobs and paychecks and you still don't have enough. And what happens? You get you fall into this, or it's just too expensive to 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 go to the doctor or what have you. There's so many reasons why. This is a community that, that doesn't have discretionary funds. What our counterparts in white America do, you know, there's an old saying um, that whenever there's an emergency, you're supposed to be able to have four or five hundred dollars or six hundred dollars, even a thousand dollars stashed away in cash. This is a community for the most part. <laughs> that is having a hard time pulling twenty dollars together. So, so, so you would so you would say that the economy, day. the economy of it is is one of the main uh, the forces behind that. The socioeconomics of it. Right, right. From right, the socio there is a, there is a different reality in Black America than it is with other parts of America. What was your reaction to some people saying uh, in the Black and, Lat and Latino community that um, this call for face masks, homemade face masks, does not work well for Black men um, and um, Latin men because it, it fulfills a frightening stereotype that could put them in danger? Uh, they are in absolutely public. right. Let, okay, I, there's one name that I want to give you. And, and, and that's the proof right there. Trayvon Martin, he wore a hoodie, and a neighborhood vigilante killed him because he profiled him for wearing a hoodie. He had Skittles in his pocket. Remember that name? Sure. Of course. You know, I, you know there are times I wear a hoodie and because they're comfortable, not because I'm in a gang or anything. And I've been, pro I mean, if I take my makeup off, and I'm wearing a hoodie and it's down low, you, you won't be able sometimes be able to tell if I'm a man or a woman. But you can see my color sometimes. And that's the thing, unfortunately, that people, they judge right away. And you don't know who I am. And if I pull it, oh, April, that's you. Oh, April, that's me. Okay. <laughs> it's unfortunate. If Barack Obama were having a hoodie down like I'm talking about, you didn't know who you, he's just another black man until you see his face. That's so, uh, the sad reality of what we're dealing with today. And there you have it. An uninterrupted conversation with the Washington, D.C. correspondent of the American Urban Radio Network and CNN political analyst, April Ryan. Her first book, The Presidency in Black and White, My Close-Up View of Three Presidents and Race in America, was published in 2015 and won an NAACP Image Award. Her second book, At Mama's Knee, Mothers and Race in Black and White, was published in 2016.
Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in hearing my weekly one-hour radio show, The Michael Harrison Rap, check out mhwrap.com. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One in association with Good Phone Communications and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.